Today, uh, we're gonna just wrap up this little section that we've been in. And this is really, uh, you could call this series Holy Spirit, you could call this Foundations. We're, we're uncovering sort of the foundational principles of scripture as it relates to this larger narrative that we're a part of. And uh, you can check out the other weeks in this, uh, but I wanna just give you a quick overview um, uh, so that you can be caught up to where we are. And we, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit from, uh, and we will talk about him from three kind of vantage points. The first vantage point, and you can think of these like three legs on a stool. The first vantage point that we want to talk about him from in this uh, is allegiance. The Holy Spirit's role in bringing us into allegiance under the leadership of Jesus. He plays an instrumental role. He's active in, in every part of that process of coming from uh, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Today we're gonna kind of wrap up this section on, on allegiance. The second leg of that stool that we'll get to at some future time is truth, the Holy Spirit's role in convicting your life and my life of teaching truth, of, uh, of convicting the world of sin, as it says in John 16, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit plays a vital role in uh, bringing revelation and insight and truth. And the third leg of that stool we'll get to in the new year is power. The Holy Spirit plays a vital role in empowering us to live out the kingdom life that God has called us to. This is one of the most thorough sort of studies on the Holy Spirit in scripture and it's called God's Empowering Presence. It's by a Canadian actually, um, a preeminent New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee. And um, we're gonna get to where we talk about the Holy Spirit's power in the life of the believer expressed through the believer. But those are the three sort of stools, as it were, of uh, three legs of the stool that we're talking about. So we're gonna end on allegiance today. And um, if you've been tracking with us, we've said some, uh, some broader statements, right? So in scripture, and again, if you're here today and you're not sure where you land with whether you trust the Bible, whether you've read it, whether you even uh, are sure you know, about Jesus, any of that stuff, that's totally awesome. Today, my, my heart is to give us a biblical foundation. And so the thoughts that I'm gonna express today, the things we'll talk through are decidedly from a biblical lens. I'm not giving you a cultural sort of narrative here. I'm just trying to express to you as best I can what scripture teaches about some of these things. And so we started in this really high sort of meta-narrative view that God uh, created the universe and the universe is both spiritual and natural. God created the natural world, the natural universe, and he created natural laws to govern it and all of those things. But our universe is both spiritual and natural. And so as a church, we believe that the scripture does not teach that God made the universe and then sort of kicked it out into wherever he kicked it and then backed away from it. 
Scripture does not teach that, that God sits back and allows all of the natural laws to entirely govern our lives and the universe and our world. Yes, there are natural laws that are in effect, right? Gravity, thermodynamics, things much too complicated for my small mind to understand. But scripture teaches that God, the spiritual realm, is incessantly active in the life of the natural. That we have spiritual and natural, and that the spiritual is always involved in the natural. There isn't, a, there isn't an iron wall separating us. So scripture teaches uh, what some call an organic view of the universe. That yes, there are natural laws, but God and the spiritual realm are always interacting with us. Why is that important? We talked about this at, de- at length, but I'll just give you the, the summary statement. It's important because God is not the only powerful, divine, spiritual being that has a plan for your life, that has a purpose for it. Satan also is a spiritual being, a sentient being with with will and intellect, decision-making capacity and power, and he too has a plan for your life. And his plan is to steal and kill and destroy. This is so crucial because sometimes we walk around thinking that God is the only one that has a plan for my life and from a spiritual perspective, he's the only one that I interact with. No, you interact with the kingdom of darkness every day, all the time. And we have to understand from scripture, we are painted this this picture, this grand picture that the universe is spiritual, that God is not the only uh, spiritual being that has a plan for our life. We moved on to talk about what happened to our world with the fall of Adam and Eve, the sin that they brought. And the reality was, scripture again teaches that because of Adam and Eve's sin, all of humanity has now come under the rule of the kingdom of darkness. We are actually, as David puts it, we're born into sin. There's a doctrine called original sin, and that's what scripture teaches. You aren't born into a place of neutrality. You are born under the rule of the kingdom of darkness on the earth. Everybody is without Jesus. There are only two kingdom options. There's not a third option that's the choose your own adventure option. There's only two. So because of Adam and Eve and their fall and their sin, Satan now has legal rights to humanity. And his work is to bind and enslave and destroy and dehumanize and twist every good thing that God made. And he's been doing an excellent job for thousands and thousands of years. He's a master at it. In this conversation, we talked about this statement that is, was maybe startling to you. I'm gonna repeat it and then just exp- repeat again the meaning of it. I made this statement a few weeks ago. On this earth, you are either possessed by the kingdom of darkness or possessed by the Holy Spirit of God sent by Jesus. There's no in-between. 
Now, here's what we have to just get straight, because some of you hear that word possessed and you go right to poltergeist or whatever freaky movie is in the movie theater right now. Possession is positional. This is a, a, an upstairs, if you think of upstairs, like in God's realm and downstairs being ours, possession is positional and sometimes presence, okay? So when I say that all of the world is under the rule and the possession of the kingdom of darkness, I don't mean that everyone is manifesting demonic stuff in their life. I don't mean that everybody's foaming at the mouth and you know, gnashing their teeth and growling at you when you're in the grocery store. That was just COVID, right? <laughs> that was just the last two years. We may have seen an uptick in that for sure. But um, so possession is positional, not presence. And here's what's super key. We talked about this. So you'd say, Andrew, well, if the whole world aside from those who have given their lives to Jesus are under the rule of Satan, like, why are people good? Why do people do good things? Why are there, in other world religions, Hinduism? There's healing that happens. People speak in tongues in Hinduism. It's not Christianity that's got the market cornered on that stuff. How can any good things happen if the world is under the rule of the kingdom of darkness, and the answer is that Satan must masquerade as an angel of light. Do you think if the devil came to you with all of his true colors, all of his vicious, vile, vengeance, disgusting everything, do you think that you would take the bait so easily? No, I wouldn't, and you wouldn't. He comes and masks himself as an angel of light. He takes on sort of the features of God the goodness of God without Jesus, right? Many people do many good things, there's no question. And sometimes when you get involved in different forms of the new age and the occult and Wiccan and other things, you, people can experience healing and all of that stuff. Can Satan heal people? You bet he can. And he does it, why? To ensure servitude. If you're healed, through white magic or a good spirit as you think, what are you gonna do? You're gonna follow that because that's the place that brought healing. That's how he tricks the world. He deceives the world into thinking that they can have goodness and life and freedom without Jesus. So there's this whole secular narrative of salvation that's in our world. And the whole point of that is to remove Jesus from the equation of needing to be Lord of our life and to attempt to attain peace and goodness and freedom on our own. So possession is not always presence, it's positional. Scripture says that that's why the very purpose for Jesus coming to the earth was to destroy the work of the devil. His whole purpose was to break the chains that have bound humanity, to do what we could never do on our own. For thousands and thousands of years, humanity struggled under the, the tightening grip of the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. If we're not under a curse, if we're not owned 
by the kingdom of darkness, what does he need to do that for? If you can just make up your own mind when it comes to the end of your life as to what you want to do, then what's the point in Jesus' coming? If there was no real curse to break, then why did he need to suffer and die? The whole point of Jesus' coming was to break the stronghold of the kingdom of darkness and give you a way out that you could never accomplish on your own. Jesus came to save the world. When that happens, when we, when we accept his lordship in our life, the Holy Spirit is active in transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We become, the scripture uses words like adopted, sealed, bought by Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is active on the earth all the time, in every way, in every season, drawing people to God. Scripture says that without the Holy Spirit, we are completely dead and blind. There's no way we can even conceive of the goodness of God or what Jesus did. So the Holy Spirit is active on the earth all the time in drawing people to Jesus, in convicting them and introducing them to the reality of Jesus. Of course, it's our choice to make. So this key idea here that we've been talking about, the question I've been asking you is which kingdom are you living in? Who are you following? There's no goodness apart from Jesus. There's no life apart from him. You can't earn his love. You can't uh, serve enough in the soup kitchen. You can't feed enough of the poor. You can't do enough on your own to overcome the power, the stronghold of the kingdom of darkness. We needed someone. We needed someone to go to war for us in heavenly places and to break the stronghold of the enemy. And that's why scripture says that Jesus has destroyed and disarmed Satan. And we're living in this in-between time here. And so we're told that the Holy Spirit is active in drawing the world toward Jesus and revealing Jesus to people. And we're told that he's active. He's active in the process of transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we need to get this straight. Upstairs versus downstairs. Upstairs. You are either owned and a slave to the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Jesus. Possession is positional and sometimes presence. Ownership has nothing to do with your behavior, your sincerity, your personality. It's about whose lordship we're coming under. Next key thing, evil doesn't always look evil. Evil most often appears good, loving, kind, benevolent. Satan is working to mask his true intentions and his true colors. This is why Jesus talked about the kingdom of God coming to the earth more than anything else. When Jesus came, he brought an insurgent kingdom onto the earth. He brought, he brought a rebel force 
onto the earth to begin to undermine and destroy from the inside the kingdom of darkness on the earth. So here's this summary statement. I wanna read this again to you to kind of um, recap this as best I can. So the universe is organic with two spiritual kingdoms. Because of sin, humanity's born into the kingdom of darkness under its power and possession. Jesus came into the world to destroy the work of the devil and bring another kingdom to earth, the kingdom of God. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus took the keys of the kingdom of Satan and triumphed over every demonic ruler, authority, principality, and power. Now, Jesus has defeated Satan and invited humanity to receive his gift of salvation by turning from their sin, believing in him, and turning their lives over to his lordship. When someone does this, Jesus transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Jesus then baptizes them in the Holy Spirit, baptism meaning fully deluged or submerged, It is the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart, who fills us and seals us as his sons and daughters until the day of redemption. We are now possessed, owned by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of Jesus is an insurgent kingdom on the earth and it is a threat to Satan and his demonic realm. So they attack, they harass, they intimidate, they deceive, and they attempt to gain ground in your life and in my life in order to undermine our spiritual authority and the impact we carry for the kingdom of God on the earth. We talked about that last week. I'm not gonna get into that in detail. Um, I believe scripture uh, teaches, uh, the, the testimony of church history teaches our personal experience teaches that Christians can have indwelling demonic spirits that need to be removed. And we went through that last week. If that's startling to you or shocking to you, I totally get it and understand. I understand why that may make you feel vulnerable, may make you feel uh, offended. I get all of that stuff, but it's a reality. It's a reality I've seen with my own eyes that I've experienced in my own life and that I see in scripture. And we covered the reasons why it is possible, scripturally speaking, for the Holy Spirit to dwell in proximity with an unclean spirit. And there's a bunch of scripture we went through. You can go back and listen to that. Also, that book that I recommended last week that sold out, we have more copies of that. It's called Deliverance. And it's the most thorough theological, biblical treatment on the topic of deliverance that I've ever come across. There's lots of books on deliverance. Many of them just kind of focus on experience. This is like the deep theology and history through church history on how we have dealt with this subject matter. So what happens? We're gonna cover this last um, sort of metaphor that we have for what happens when you surrender your life to Jesus that scripture talks about. And this idea of Holy Spirit baptism, what is it? When does it happen? Are there more than one, all of these things? What we know from scripture, let's start in Matthew 3.11, okay? Matthew 3.11, 
This is John speaking, and he's, um, he's preaching in the wilderness. He's about to baptize Jesus. He says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater, I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. Now, I want you to kind of underline this, whatever you do. He will baptize you. So who is the baptizer? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is a crucial thing that we need to actually get straight. Again, I'm just coming, we're just coming back to scripture to understand kind of how this works. When you say, Jesus, I submit and I surrender my life to you. Jesus says, yes, my grace is sufficient for you. Yes, I will cover you with my blood. Yes, uh, I, I will live in you. And Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. What that word baptize means, it means to fully immerse or deluge. Jesus fully immerses us in the reality of the Holy Spirit when we give our life to him. He fully immerses us. Here's what that means. A Holy Spirit baptized life is a life that is in total step with the Holy Spirit and how you think, what you value, what you prioritize, what you say, how you act, and how you walk in faithfulness to him. Holy Spirit baptism is not just a set of gifts that he gives. That's part of it, and that's a big part of it. But to be immersed in the Holy Spirit life is to walk in step with him in every sphere of your life. That everything that you do in the day, you're submitting and surrendering to him and saying, you know, good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I submit my life to you today. My life is your life. Would my mind be your mind? Would my finances be your finances? Would, would my life, my work be your work? Would everything in me be filled and saturated and totally immersed in you? I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for your purposes in me. That's what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So then there's a question. Are there subsequent baptisms? What does scripture teach about that? We're not gonna get, like, you can go so deep into this. I don't wanna bore you today with tons of scripture. What I wanna suggest to you is the answer to that question is yes and no. Kind of, sort of, maybe. Tomato, tomato, that's what I'm gonna say. My experience in this, and what we teach as a church, is that the Holy Spirit and all of his charismata, all of his gifts are for today. The gifts did not die with the apostles. The power gifts of the Holy Spirit did not die out at the end of the apostolic age with John. They've continued, they're available, and God uses them on the earth every day through his people. All of them, tongues, prophecy, healing, miracles, you name it, the list, and we'll cover all of those in detail. So as a church, theologically, we're fully on board with all of that stuff. What we want to do is just kind of look specifically at the language around that. Because if you've grown up, a lot of you have in a traditional Pentecostal church, and I've spent 
a lot of my childhood at Bethel Pentecostal camp near London. It's a German Pentecostal camp. I have a mixed feeling about German Pentecostal camps just because it was more like a military camp, I felt like, in the 80s than anything. Um, but my family's German, and they went to a German Pentecostal church growing up, and so that's where I went, and I was uh, introduced to this whole thing as a, as a youngster, even. And so if you come from a traditional Pentecostal background... You believe that there is the sanctifying work of Jesus through salvation, but there's a secondary outpouring, a secondary baptism that can be experienced, that comes most of the time in a very traditional sense. It always must come with tongues. That's called initial evidence. Not many hold that view anymore, but that there's a secondary baptism we can experience. And I would say to that, amen, and yes, but we need to just kind of figure out the language there a little bit. Because when Paul is talking about this reality, number one, scripture doesn't teach that there is only one subsequent baptism. Scripture doesn't teach that you become a Christian and then at a certain time, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and those two are just the markers and then you go on the rest of your life. What Paul actually teaches is that we are to be being filled continually. What Paul teaches is a re-baptism every day in the life of the Holy Spirit, to be immersed in his presence and in his life. What Paul teaches is an ongoing and increasing capacity of baptism to receive the Spirit in our life, not a singular event. And here's where sometimes we get tripped up because we're like, hey, when was the time you were baptized in the Holy Spirit? And people go back to this date as though that is sort of like uh, their life has been on pause really spiritually since then. But the purpose of the filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to actually immerse us into the Spirit's reality and presence daily in our life. It's to happen and then happen again and then happen tomorrow. And then when we need more strength for our life to be expanded in its capacity to carry the presence of God. Over and over, and this is what we see in Acts. We see, you know, in Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit coming. And then a few chapters later, they're praying up in the room again. And they're saying, give us boldness. And the Holy Spirit comes again. And then the Holy Spirit comes again. And in more power and in more ways, what we need is that. Not just one singular experience. Maybe another way to think about this. I I would interchange the word baptism with filling. Scripturally, it happens. It's a real thing that happens. I'm not denying that it it exists and that it absolutely happens and it's absolutely essential. But baptism and filling could be interchanged together and maybe an analogy to help would be, you know, if you came to me and you said you had a, you know, a migraine headache and you've been praying and it, you know, couldn't go away and I, I took out, you know, from my backpack a, a bottle of, Tylenol and gave you the Tylenol and and that totally worked and it, it helped you but then as I was checking my backpack later that day I realized that it was Advil and not Tylenol that's kind of what we're talking about here it's two words that describe the same reality that the Holy Spirit wants to have 
uh, an immersive, totally all-consuming presence in your life. The question is, do you want that? So many people pray for this singular moment experience and then just leave the Holy Spirit where they left him 30 years ago. Yeah, maybe they pray in tongues on a regular basis, but they're not growing in their capacity to carry his presence more. They're fixed in that one moment of time, but Jesus wants to re-baptize them, re-immerse them, refill them in the Holy Spirit's reality and presence on an ongoing basis. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That word is a present tense indicative. It means be being filled. Seek it, pursue it every day, all the time. Holy Spirit, I want you to invade my reality and my life. I want my life to take on your nature and your form. So is there a subsequent baptism? Yeah, kind of, sort of. I don't think we need to get um, hung up on super dogmatic language with that. I'm okay if you say, you know, hey, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Great, I know what you mean. I'm totally fine with that. What I want to guard us against is saying that this is a one-time event that is never to be repeated again. God wants to continue to renew your life. I think of it this way in my life. He wants to continue to increase my capacity to carry his presence on the earth. But to do that, I don't live in this event that happened 20 years ago in my life. I live in this present day reality. Jesus, what do I need to do to empty myself of me and be filled with more of your spirit in my life today? These are questions that I ask. I want you to just open up to this scripture here. Galatians 5, 13. It's a long one, we're gonna read it together. This, I think, is one of the best descriptions of the Holy Spirit baptized life, what it looks like in many ways. All right, Galatians 5.13. You have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. You know, you can sin as much or worse when you speak in tongues as anybody else can. I'm a living example of that. <laughs> These things don't automatically guard you from the temptations of the world and from the realities of this pressing in of the kingdom of darkness. So don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. This is what it means to be immersed into the life of the Spirit. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting, let me slow down. If you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Paul goes on. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Again, um, 
Paul is referencing here this reality we've talked about so often that he writes about in Ephesians 2, the unholy trinity, which is the flesh, the world, and the devil are always at work to undermine the Holy Spirit's presence and fullness in our life. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants, and the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your, your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasure, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let's not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. He continues, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall in the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. To be immersed in the Holy Spirit is to be saturated in his reality and presence in every area of your life. And this is what Paul is talking about. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit when it comes to confrontation with others? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit when it comes to stuff going on in your marriage or in your family, in your parenting? Are you filled with the Spirit as it relates to how you see others? how you process hurt and offense? Are you filled with the Spirit in the way that you handle your resources and your finance? Are you filled with the Spirit in all of these ways? Holy Spirit baptism is not just about supernatural charismatic gifts. Those are part of it. But his baptism is an immersion into his way of living, his way of processing everything in your life. 
And then he gives us in his goodness, these gifts to accompany us, to help us to accomplish what we cannot on our own. But the gifts of the spirit are not yours. You don't have a gift of prophecy. He is the one who gives you prophetic utterance. It's his gift, it's not yours. None of the gifts are ours, they're his. They come from him, they're rooted in him, they're distributed by him. He has the authority in them, they're not our gifts. They're useful to us, they're tools to equip us to overcome the work of the enemy, to overcome the the chains of the enemy in our life, to to, um, embolden the church and to equip us to fulfill the calling of God in our life, but they're not our gifts. So Holy Spirit immersion, baptism, being baptized by the Spirit is to be saturated. In his reality, the way he thinks about things, the way he processes trauma and pain and conflict, the way that he engages, it's walking as if you're in his shoes when you go to work, when you face difficulty. Who's the one that's in the lead? This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians. To be saved... This is from Gordon Fee in this book. To be saved means to live the life of a saved person. To be saved is not only a theological doctrinal reality. To be saved means to live the life of a saved person. It means to carry the Holy Spirit's presence in everything we do. And in his goodness, God gives us an advocate, a helper, to fill us with strength we don't have, to bless us with gifts that we don't possess, to give us the wisdom that we need and the capacity we need to overcome everything that is set against us and the purposes of God. So the question is, how do we do this? And now we come back to what we started the year with. We do this the same way Jesus did. Jesus lived a life that was entirely dependent on the Holy Spirit. I've said this before, I'll just remind you and I'll remind myself, that Jesus did not use his divinity as a secret get out of jail card. Philippians two, Jesus humbled himself and willingly accepted every single human limitation that you and I experience in our walk with God. Every human limitation, Jesus humbled himself and walked in, and he never expressed healing or the power of God simply out of his divinity. He relied on the Holy Spirit's power and depended on him in every way. When Jesus healed, it was the Holy Spirit working through him. When he preached and did all these kinds of things, it was the spirit. So how do we do it? How do we live this spirit baptized life? We do it the way that Jesus did. We've kind of identified three crucial areas. Three ways that we can become like Jesus. These were three crucial areas in Jesus's life. The first area, Jesus submitted his life to scripture. He came under the authority of scripture. He was shaped by scripture. He didn't stand over it. 
and give it its own meaning. He allowed scripture to shape his life. The question is, are you actually allowing scripture to shape your life? Or are you more shaped by your favorite preacher or teacher? And Lord knows it's probably not me. <laughs> like, are you being shaped by scripture itself or by someone else's interpretation of it? It's crucial. You cannot grow if your whole life exists on listening to preaching and messages from other people. You must be in the word yourself. I want you to test everything I say. Don't just take my word for it. Search it out. Live your life under the authority of scripture like Jesus did. Allow it to shape you and to form you and mold you into the man or woman that God is calling you to be. You cannot survive on secondhand bread from some pastor or preacher. You can't. You can't survive on just coming and listening to me. Your spiritual life will flatline if all you do is listen to me and not actually spend your own time with Jesus in the word. So Jesus lived this Holy Spirit baptized, immersed life by bringing his life under scripture. The second thing Jesus did, he intentionally had rhythms of spiritual practice. Some people call them disciplines or holy habits. These are the things these are the things, spiritual practices, fasting, prayer, um, you know, there's, there's tons of them, uh, Sabbath, all of these things. These are um, not, they, they have no merit of their own. There's no sort of glory in like, hey, I did my devotions for an hour every morning for the last three weeks. Great, good. But there's nothing to be achieved in spiritual disciplines. What are they? They are the gateway to the presence of God in your life. They are the intentional doorway into the very heart and throne room of the Father. That's why they're important. Not because they hold in themselves any power, but because they bring us intentionally into the very presence of the Father who can then speak to us and shape our life. How did Jesus live and act? He said, I only do what I see the Father doing and I only say what I hear him saying. How did that happen? Because he immersed his life in spiritual rhythms that placed him in proximity proximity to the Father so that he could receive from the Father. And we have the same ability today. How do we remain filled and be being filled? We spend time intentionally in the Father. How are you organizing your time? What takes priority and precedence in your life? Is it knowing God and walking in intimacy with him? It doesn't mean you have to do it at 5.30 in the morning. That doesn't make you more righteous than if you're a night person. Rochelle is a night person. Even last night, I'm like, what, what time is it? It's so late and you're still up. It's true. <laughs> but she comes alive at like 11.45, right? I've been sleeping for an hour and a half and she's like, the whole world comes alive for her at, at that time. It's just part of her family, but... So it's not about having to get up in the morning specifically. It's about saying, how do I prioritize my time? What is occupying your attention these days? The way that Jesus developed intimacy was to give his attention to the Father. And we do that through various ways. The third thing that Jesus did was he relied on the Holy Spirit's gifts and power. 
Just a basic question with that. We're going to get into teaching that in the new year, but a question I would have for you with that is which parts of your spiritual life right now, in reality, like just think about your, your, your life in general, maybe your spiritual life, which parts of it cannot in any way be accomplished by you with your own gifts, your own strength, and your own wisdom? When was the last time, another way to ask this for us, and this is, this is I'm preaching to myself here, when was the last time you so stood out in faith and in trust in God that unless God actually came through, the whole bottom would have fallen out. You would have had no ability to kind of spin this thing, to kind of re, rejig things. When was the last time you so trusted God in your life that unless it was God, the whole thing was gonna fall completely apart? The Holy Spirit is inviting us to develop dependency on him. So just an honest question, are you actually dependent on him? Or can you exist totally, naturally, out of your own strength and capacity? Does your spiritual life require anything of the spirit? And I'm asking that of myself. In order for us to live a spirit-saturated, baptized, filled life, we have to actually entrust our life to him. This is part of what it means to be filled with the spirit and baptized into his presence. So is there secondary work of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. But there's like a third area and fourth area. I don't know if those are real words, but there's lots of those. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth. His joy is to actually fill you and equip you and empower you to live the life that he's, he's dreamed of for you. And you need it, and I need it. His invitation to you today is to ask him, when was the last time? Like, honestly, when was the last time you just cried out to the Holy Spirit and said, I, I can't do this without you. I need you. Would you fill me? When was the last time you earnestly prayed for his gifting? Paul says, it's a command in scripture that you seek the gift of prophecy. When's the last time you did that? It's a command. It's not even an option to seek his gifts. When's the last time you were on your face, in your living room, all by yourself, crying out to God to fill you with his gifting and his power and his anointing? I think so many of us, myself included, live this one-dimensional spiritual life because we're not even asking. We're not we're not hungry for his presence, really. We can get by without it, if we're honest. Why don't you stand with me? I want to just put this together for you as we close. Why does all of this matter? 
This last few weeks of this, why does it matter? Number one, because God is not the only powerful spiritual being with a plan for your life. It matters because all of humanity was born under the curse and the rule of Satan. It matters because Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. And it matters because he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us and fill us in order to walk a victorious Christian life. It matters. It matters. God wants you to walk out his vision and calling, his purpose for your life. And he's given you his very presence, his very presence to enable that to happen. The question is, are you connecting with the Holy Spirit? Are you friends with the Holy Spirit? It's a he, it's not an it. Are you dependent on him? Are you seeking him out? Are you desperate for his activity in your life in greater measures? Are you desperate to carry greater measures of his presence? I would dare to ask you, are you desperate for his Pentecostal power? That's a real thing. And in North America, we scarcely walk in it because we're comfortable and we have all of our needs met in general and we don't lack for anything. And so we're not desperate for it, but are you desperate today for the Holy Spirit to immerse you in his reality and his presence to strengthen you with strength you don't have, to give you wisdom you don't possess, to give you gifts that you need to overcome all of the work of the enemy in your life? Is that even something you're hungry for? Do you desire to walk in step with him in areas of habitual sin, sexual sin, compulsive habitual sin, areas of anger and hatred and rage, areas of unforgiveness? Do you wanna walk in step with him in these? That is what it means to be immersed in his life. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. I just sense the Spirit just reinforcing this question for you that he has for you. Are you hungry for him? Could you say what David said? One thing I ask more than anything else is not only to dwell in your presence, I'm hungry and thirsty for the spirit of the living God. Holy Spirit, first of all, we just We're honored that you would live in us when we are so filled with 
inconsistency and failure. And we just repent for any ways that we've grieved you. If you're able to this morning, just between you and the Holy Spirit, I wanna just invite you to ask him. Just ask him, Holy Spirit, have I grieved you in any ways? Anything that I've been thinking, any pattern of thinking or any judgments I've made of others, any, any pattern of sin, Holy Spirit, have I grieved you in any way? And if specific things come to mind, I just want to invite you to just say to him, just simply, I'm sorry for grieving you with that. I'm sorry for quenching your spirit in me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd bring conviction. We just dedicate ourselves to Jesus right now. Bring ourselves under the covering of his blood. I forbid any unholy power from uh, interfering or influencing or exerting any demonic power in this moment. In Jesus' name, we bring every thought under the captivity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and forbid any lying or deceiving or blinding spirit from hindering uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit or his reality here right now in Jesus' name. After you've asked the Holy Spirit if there's any way that you've grieved him or quenched him, I want you, if you're actually serious, I want you to ask him if he'd fill you with his presence. Just do it right where you are. Just ask him, just between you and him. Say, Holy Spirit. You can even say, I'm sorry. I repent for not seeking you. I repent for not prioritizing you in my life. I repent for devaluing you. And I ask that you would fill me and renew me again that you would pour out all of the fullness of your presence on my life again. And I want you to just follow that. And if you're genuine and honest and sincere, I want you to ask him if he would give you a hunger and longing for his presence. And I want you to ask him if he, ask him for his gifts in your life. You can just say, Holy Spirit, I need your power and your presence. I'm asking for you to pour out the gifts that I need today and in this season of my life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for walking with us. Father, my prayer for us together is that you would teach us to be people that walk in step with your spirit. My prayer is that you would anoint us with your spirit. My prayer is that as a church, we would learn to operate in the gifts of your spirit together 
My prayer is that as a church, you would strengthen your body through the body and the gifts that you want to pour out into it. My prayer is that we would be greater stewards of your presence and your authority and your anointing. My prayer is that you would increase our capacity to carry the kingdom in our lives, in our homes and in our marriages and in our school hallways, in our lecture classes, that you would increase our capacity to carry the kingdom of God into dark and broken places. My prayer, Father, is that you would anoint us to carry your kingdom life into every broken place you're inviting us. And my prayer is that you would fill us, Holy Spirit, as a church with more of yourself and less of us. My prayer is that we would decrease and that you would increase. My prayer is that the stage and this platform would become nothing and that you would become everything. My prayer is that you would unify and unite your church again. My prayer is that you would free those who are bound in slavery and addiction. My prayer is that you would heal those. God, with deep wounds, wounds and trauma. My prayer, Holy Spirit, is that you would work in every capacity, in every facet of every person's life here. My prayer is that we would live fully immersed in your presence and in your reality. My prayer is that you would raise up warriors in your army. My prayer, Father, this day is that this church would be a place that is known for the presence of God. My prayer, Father, is that we would be known as the people of God who walk in the presence and in the power of God. My prayer, Father, is that we would be able to confront every weapon that's formed against us, not out of our own wisdom or strength, not because we have sound financial documents or that we have great worship, but that we walk in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that you would deeply stir and break our hearts. My prayer is that we would be led by compassion and humility and gentleness and love. My prayer, Father, is that you would restore marriages and that you would restore relationships in the home. Would you unify us, Holy Spirit? I want to have your heart for the people that I love that are standing here with me. I want to carry your heart into broken and hard places. Holy Spirit, would you do a new and powerful work in each one of our lives? We love you. Amen.